Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Setticase. I'm Joel Setticase, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Just a quick word of housekeeping before we get started here. I wanted to let you all know, in case you don't know already, that I am going to be representing the Think Institute at the upcoming Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, Tennessee. That's going to be taking place on October 1 through 3. And uh, I'll be there with my booth. We're going to be doing a special lunch event as well. We'll have some some uh, things to sell and things to uh, to buy. I'll be selling uh, copies of my book, Catechids, and uh, you can check that out. Um, and then we're also going to be at the Cruciform Conference in Indianapolis on October 23rd and 24th. So you definitely want to check us out there. Just stop by, say hi, and um, swing by our booth and uh, let me know that you listen to the show. It's always great to connect with people in real life who appreciate the work we're trying to do through the Think Institute and with the Think Podcast. So as you probably know, we have several different forms, uh, iterations of the Think Podcast throughout the week. And uh, the three big ones are the Tuesday Twofer, Worldview Wednesday, and Thunder Thursdays with my brother Parker. And on Worldview Wednesday, we try to tackle those worldview questions that are going on uh, that that are lifted from the headlines or from your favorite news site or from uh, trending topics on Twitter, things like that. But they're the there are those issues that um, we're all dealing with in one form, uh, one form or another, but we want to learn how to deal with them from a biblical worldview. And one of those things that's that uh, I've been noticing a lot lately, and and uh, even been promoting myself, is this rise of Christian culture builders. We're going to talk about that today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, stay tuned. Keep watching. But um, there's we always try to address these pressing questions on this show, and Here's a question that um, many people might be wondering right now. And um, the question is this, has Brian Sauvé lost his mind? Has Brian Sauvé lost his mind? His activity on Twitter is typically eye-catching, but something that he tweeted recently really caught our attention to the point that we knew we needed to get him on to this show and interview him for Worldview Wednesday. Now, normally I've got uh, Pastor Rafe by my side, but unfortunately he's not doing well right now. Health-wise, he's feeling sick. Please pray for him. So I'm going to be interviewing Pastor Brian Sauvé um, solo today. But we knew we needed to have him on, and here's why. Because of this tweet that uh, in which Brian Sauvé said this. Wanted, I'm quoting here, okay? Listen to how crazy this sounds. Wanted. Christians interested in building an institution-building church in Ogden, Utah. Start businesses, flip houses, homestead, hire Christians, multi-generational legacy, build culture, and generally make a holy ruckus. Oh, and we're starting a school in fall 2021. Join us. Listen, doesn't Pastor Brian Sauvé know that pastors are supposed to stick to overseeing their churches and engaging culture, not creating culture. And yet there he is talking about actually creating institutions and, quote, making a holy ruckus, end quote. Again, we ask, has Pastor Brian Sauvé lost his mind? Well, as we're going to see today, we're going we're gonna to get the answer to that question. But he and his church are self-professed cultural and theological maximalists. 
Along with a rising movement of Christian culture makers, they believe that scripture, God's word, has direct implications for all of life, not only for Sunday mornings, but for your, quote, emotional, mental, spiritual, social, political, relational, and physical self, end quote. Has he lost his mind? He and his fellow elders, his church has a plurality of them, they want to build a radical Christian culture in Utah. And did we mention they are starting a school? So who is Pastor Brian Sauve? I'm going to keep introducing him here. He's, he's waiting in the green room right now, but I'm going to keep, keep going with this introduction. He is a pastor at Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. He's been a Christian from a young age and has been married since 2011 to Lexi. And they actually met in the library of his junior high with whom he has been blessed with four children. Pastor Brian Sauvey is an avid preacher and gospel man deeply committed to exegetical and biblical theology, as well as the primacy of the gospel. He co-hosts the Stump the Pastors podcast, which I was just listening to earlier this afternoon. And he writes on the topics of culture, theology, church life, church life, philosophy, and more for Deeply Rooted Magazine, for the church, and his personal blog, which you can find at Mouse and Main over at briansove.com, as well as other outlets. Now, Brian earned his bachelor's degree in biblical studies and in what is perhaps his greatest honor, or at least perhaps not his greatest dishonor, Brian is my guest today on what is sure to be an engaging, educational, and inspiring episode of Worldview Wednesdays here on the Think Podcast. So buckle up, but not too tight, because you're about to be on the edge of your seat the entire time. It's time to talk about Christian culture building and this trend of the rise of Christian culture builders, who's doing it, how to do it, and what the future holds for Ogden, Utah, and other gospel outposts around the United States and beyond. So without any further ado, please welcome Brian Sauvey, to the Think Podcast Worldview Wednesday episode. Pastor Brian, welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, Joel. I'm excited to be here. Man, not as excited as I am, believe me, to have you on. Um, let me just say real quick, everyone watching, if you have any questions for Pastor Brian Sauvey and anything we're going to be talking about, go ahead and drop them in the comments below. Brian, are you okay taking a few comments sure. or questions? Sure. That's Q live Q&A. No preparation is one of my favorite things because anything can happen. Well, you know what? Um, I knew you'd be comfortable with that because you um, you host a podcast called Stump the Pastors, after all. So yeah, I figured uh, that would be something that's right up your alley. So, um, Brian, could you give us a little bit of a background into you and, and how you got to this point where you're pastoring there in um, in Utah and how you became so passionate about just what it is you're passionate about? Sure. Um, well, I have been pastoring Refuge Church here in Ogden. Uh, I've been a pastor at the church for uh, about eight, maybe nine years at this point, and I've served as the preaching and liturgy pastor for about the last six of those years. And uh, over the course of those, especially the last six years, really just through preaching through books of the Bible, um, my views on these issues and a lot of other things began to form and uh, make waves in my own life and then subsequently <laughs> in the life of our congregation. Um, but yeah, we have just been uh, having a great time here in Ogden, um, trying to figure out creatively how to reach 
uh, Mormon culture, as well as uh, all of the reactionary to the Mormon culture elements that you find in a place like Utah, and to varying degrees of success, praying for praying for more. And you guys are pretty close to Salt Lake City there, aren't you? Yes, we're about 40 minutes, 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City here. Ogden's like the second biggest um, city outside of that area in, in Utah. Okay. Um, I've only been out to Salt Lake City one time. Mm -hmm. And um, while, when I was there, this was years ago, decades ago. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a sign for one of the local, I don't know if it was a suburb or a community, a neighborhood within Salt Lake, but it, it said the tagline was a proud pagan community. And I thought, is that, you know, pagan is the, the word that we use to describe unbelievers. Um, mm. do, do, do you know about anything about that movement? Is that part of the reaction against Mormonism that's out there? Is that is that something that's within the sphere of, of the people you're working with? Or is that something you've never heard of before? I, I hadn't seen that particular sign, but you do. I mean, even in the neighborhood that we're located in, um, you have maybe 60% very conservative LDS, uh, Mormon families, big families. But you also have almost, there's not much gray gradation between that and then there's just a big chasm. And on the other side of it, you have the other 37% of the culture that is just completely opposed to Mormonism. Um, doesn't like the way that the LDS church is embedded in the political and cultural systems of Utah. And then you have about 3% Protestant, 2 to 3% Protestant Christians. Um, I th think we may be the only state in the wow. nation that was never predominantly Christian. I think we may wow. have that honor. But it's a truly unreached people group, never never been uh, in any meaningful way um, reached by the by the true and living Christ. So... It's always an interesting, an interesting week in Ogden, Utah, as a Christian. Man, that that's really amazing. Um, it's funny, funny to think about that because oftentimes we think of American culture as sort of an apostate culture. You know, mm -hmm. we, we all used to be Christian, um, but that's not really the case in Utah. Utah was settled as a Mormon or Latter Day Saint. Um, what would you call it? An, an, a, a, Outpost, Utopia. <laughs> Utopia, yeah, yeah. This is the place they said when they got here, and right. they were aiming to basically set up their own thing, their own self-contained community. It actually, it's interesting in a lot of ways. Mormon culture is uh, understands the, the the what it takes to uh, build out a culture better than a lot of evangelicalism, because they so? they're, they're very much they understand this kind of. Uh, expanding spheres of the self, the family, the church, vocation, politics. And they understand that you can't just hermetically seal these areas off from one another. So, I mean, they have, um, if you go to public school in Utah, which I did public school, I was K to 12. Really, I, my, uh, under, my associates was in a public university here in Utah as well. Um, you'll, you'll walk right off the border of the public school property and there'll be a building called the seminary. And that's a Mormon owned building where kids get release time during the school with permission of the school to go and get their Mormon doctrine. Whoa, so really? They don't, they don't do like homeschooling and private schooling, really. They're all in on the public system, but the way that they do it is even, you know, in a way that you can tell that they understand the gravity of education. And uh, yeah, like an hour a day, during the school year, their Mormons are in their seminary class.
You know, that's that's really fascinating because if you actually trace the legacy of public schooling in the U.S. back into you know the last century, um, going back to let's say the 1950s, the public schools in the U.S. were primarily Protestant, and actually. The reason why so many Catholic schools popped up is because the Catholics were agitated right. and frustrated that their kids were all becoming Protestants due to all the the high level of you know Protestant worldview that was there mm. in the, the public school. So is that is that kind of what's going on there in, in Utah? Only it's it's Mormon, it's LDS instead of um, uh, Protestant. Yeah, very similar. And and I mean, until I'm sure until very recently most of your teachers would have been there are still many lds teachers in the public school system but they owned everything i mean they own the politics they own the education they own the businesses they own the communities and so you do see this very much kind of two system two to almost like two-party politics but cultures here in utah with uh mormons and then reactionary whether it's pagan or very liberal um and they owned everything they they were they were right there Wow. So you're, you're here at the church, you're at mm. refuge. Um, can you tell us about the, the ethos of your church ministering in a place that's, would you say two to 3%, three to 4% Protestant? Yeah, so, somewhere in there. And it's, it's hard to know. Um, some statistics will mix uh, Mormons in to their Christians definitions. Oh, sure. Right. Uh, yeah. Def right around 3% or less of Protestants, I would say. Okay. So what's the, I've looked at the website of your church mm -hmm. and uh, man, I was very encouraged by what I read there. But for mm -hmm. those who really aren't familiar with refuge, what's your driving ethos there? Tell us about that. And, sure. and what are you guys trying to get after? And what was behind that tweet mm -hmm. that I read earlier yeah. in the introduction? Yeah. Well, our goal here in Utah, which is a goal that's on 100%, the Lord can do whatever he wants, but it's it's 100% likely to be a one to five century sort of project. Okay. Is, is to make Ogden a Christian city, uh, to build Christendom here in Ogden. And in most places in America, that means building Christendom in the ruins of the old Christendom. But in Utah, that actually means you're knocking temples down. Nobody called the police, not literally, but you're you're taking down the Mormon church and you're building up in in the midst of that. And we we kind of view the not just the local church, but uh, more like the whole people of God and everything that. So not just the the institutional church and the worship service of the church and the elders of the church, but all of the households that make up that household as as something like a cathedral of humanity which I think is, is uh, a picture that the New Testament over and over invites us to see when we think of the church. The new Jerusalem descending from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, Peter, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. We're living stones built into a household for God. Paul in 1 Corinthians, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, we have this Christ, the true temple, true Israel, who comes and through his life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and enthronement and ministry now he's making a new humanity that is to look something like a big cathedral or house or temple and uh we think of that as like christian culture all of the activities of the of a human endeavor and human life uh, are affected and transformed 
through the work of grace, through the new humanity building work of Christ. And, and so we think that as a church, what that means is that our goal should be to go and be Christians in every area and avenue of human life and human culture, from the self to the household, to vocation, to the worship of the church, education, politics, you name it, we should be operating there. And um, one of those, I think you you were reading from a from an, a different tweet uh, in your introduction, which thank you. That was the that was a, a great introduction. That was entertaining to listen to. <laughs> you were talking about, um, I think I said something about uh, in in First uh, Timothy three. I might be getting my address wrong, where Paul says that the word of God e- equips the man of God for every good work. So you think, what is that? Where are the edges to that? That's not just about singing and receiving the word and the sacraments and gathering in worship, though it includes that, but it's every political good work, every sexual good work, every cultural good work, every political good work. It's all, you can't put that into this ecclesiastical box, right? There you go. He may be complete equipped for every good work. And when when I started, to, I had a paradigm change over the last couple of years of thinking through what does that mean for me as a pastor and discipling people? Like Paul said to the Colossians, my aim is that you would be fully mature. You would stand fully mature in Christ. So apparently that's going to mean that we need to see the, the transforming work of the new birth and the scriptures pressed out into what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be married and build a household, what the mission of your uh, education for your children, I mean, down the list. And um, that's really changed the way that we've built and thought about ministry and discipleship uh, in in the functioning of the church over the last several years together. So you said this is a one to 500 year vision. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a lot of people are listening to that Mm -hmm. and they're going, man, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, You know, things are only getting worse. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, uh, I, I don't know what the tradition was that you were raised in. Were you raised at all in, in more of a dispensational kind of uh, milieu like a lot of us were? Yeah. I was raised in a seeker sensitive mega church environment. And okay. when I, I was just about to graduate high school, I was on staff at that church leading musical worship for kind of the, the hip, you know, the, when the night service for the young people became popular. Sure. And they were like, let's get the youth group guy up on stage. And, and I'm, I cringe when I think of the songs I used to lead, but, uh, like what? I, like what? Oh, is the, what's, the, what's a good one? When you get like the, my glorious, my glorious. I don't know that. Yeah, just every every cliche classic K Love song you could think of. Okay. Rock okay. out. That's what we were doing. I, I got you. Oh, how, yeah. how old are you, Brian? I'm 29. 29. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So 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 I'm trying to think. Maybe I was already out of that phase by then. I'm 36. So I'm. I'm thinking. I I understand the cringiness. I understand yeah. the. Uh, I I don't know that particular song, but but I, yeah. I'm with you on the, on you the whole vibe. To. Yeah, <laughs> you don't need to. Well, we we my my wife and I were dating at this point in high school, and we discovered this little Calvary Chapel church plant, and it was our first exposure to expository preaching. Okay, and it was just made a huge deposit. It's actually the church I pastor now was this church. And um, I went through their elder candidacy process, became an elder, and through a series of wild and crazy events, became the preaching pastor. Wait, in, your church is a 
your church is a Calvary Chapel church? It used to be. And uh, <laughs> I really started preaching through books of the Bible. And in the course of that, I was a Calvinist by the end of Genesis. I mean, I was... Genesis no, 50, I, 20 will do that to you. Right. I mean, <laughs> Joseph, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. And I was like, yes. wait a second. Hang on here. What <laughs> God meant... Okay. So there, it just... I, I kept changing and coming to new convictions. Uh, you know, I'd lost the pre-trib rapture by the time I was through Colossians. And mm. uh, I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College. Uh, that was where I earned my degree. But I basically told the elder team a um, couple, you know, five, six years ago, you guys either need to tell me to step down or we need to not tell people that this is a Calvary Chapel anymore because I'm post-millennial and Calvinistic. And that's Wow. You know, it'd be like being a Presbyterian church that doesn't baptize infants at that right, point. So right. we, uh, we did, we stepped back from Calvary and we've just been sort of an independent confessionally reformed church, 1689 confession um, okay. since then as an elder team. So that was going to be another question I was going to ask you mm -hmm. is your eschatology, but you just, you just showed your cards. So oh, I you, did. Yeah. you are post-millennial. Yes. Okay. Yes. Brian, why is everybody going post mail, man? Look, I, I, I got to tell you, all, so many of the guys who think like you, mm -hmm. and and I would I, honestly, I would put spilling some of my own beans here, laying mm -hmm. some of my own cards on the table. What you're talking about, and I want to get into it more about what you're trying mm -hmm. to do there in in Ogden. Sure, um, is very appealing. It's very inspiring, but um, but so many of the guys who are like minded are going down that post-millennial, um, uh, they're jumping on the post-millennial train. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't get there myself. Yeah. I would love for you to just explain what is it about post-mill, the post-mill view? What, what is it? Because the more I hear people talking about post-mill, uh, the more it doesn't sound, it sounds more like what I believe as a, as an optimistic amillennialist. Yeah. It does not sound like what I was taught the post mill is back in, I don't even know when college or undergrad, I don't remember where. Yeah. Um, so what's your view of, of post mill and how does that factor into what you're doing? And then maybe from there we can talk more about other guys who are doing what you're trying to do and, and some of the implications yeah. of that for broader society. Yeah. I think one thing that you might be running into there with the dis the disparity between what I thought of as post millennialism and, and maybe what a lot of folks who now would say, this is what I mean by post millennialism is that it seems like when um, when a lot of treatments of post-millennialism are explaining and defining the view, they focus quite a bit on golden age sort of talk rather than great commission sort of talk, which is, it's it's a part of it. But to me, when, I, when I'm talking about post-millennialism, which I became post-millennial through Sam Storm's book, A Case for Amillennialism, because his, his chapter on post-millennialism was so good and the verse he had, he had like five pages where he just listed these. He said, these are what post-millennialists would point to in the Old and New Testament to undergird their view. And by the end of that list, I thought he, I, he, he needs to have some compelling reasons why these verses don't mean what, what the post-millennialists post are saying they mean. Uh -huh. And then I, wasn't, I didn't find his reasons compelling. But when I say post-millennialism, what I basically mean in a nutshell is that the Great Commission will be successful that um, when Christ returns, he'll return to an earth where every tribe, tongue, and people will have at least a significant number of Christians who have bent the knee to Christ in that population. And that's what I mean. 
I think there are cultural implications, as I'm talking even earlier about what the gospel does to this to human beings. Of course, it has cultural implications and political implications and all kind of other implications. And there are Old Testament prophecies that I think give us some hints of maybe a future state prior to the eschaton where we'll see a large amount of Christians who are influential culturally and politically. Um, but I'm not as much focused on a golden age as I am on when Christ returns, it will be a wheat field, not a tear field. There will be tares in the field, but you wouldn't look at it and say, that's a tear field. That's a, that's a wheat mm. field. You would look at it and say, oh, that's a wheat field. There's some tares in there, mm. but, and they're going to be cut down and gathered at the end of the harvest. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God's like leaven. It's like a seed. It's like a stone that was cut out by no human hands that topples the statue of empire, becomes a mountain and covers the earth. All these are people of God imagery, the kingdom of God, the people of God. And all of them seem to portray this inexorable, slow, leavening, multiplying, conquering of the world by the kingdom of God. So that's what made me post-millennial in a nutshell and what I mean by it. Okay. Help me out then, because what sure. you just described, I, I do see as being in line with more of an optimistic mm -hmm. millennialism. Yep. And if you think about, so when I think about post-mill and the post-mill expectation, hmm. So, so maybe what you said about the wheat field, um, maybe that's the big difference. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I read scripture and I see the expectation for Christians is that we are going to be persecuted. We're going to be like lambs uh, before the uh, lambs, you know, being led to slaughter, mm -hmm. um, you know, all day long. We're like that all uh, the... the um, Hmm. The expectation, Jesus said in this world, you'll have tribulation, but mm -hmm. take heart. I've overcome the world. Yeah. Our citizenship is in the new Jerusalem, not here on earth. Mm -hmm. Christ's kingdom is, it doesn't say it's not in the world. Mm -hmm. It does say it's not of the world. That's right. Um, so my, my, well, and then, and then not only that, but the expectation that at the end of the, the current period. So I believe we're in the millennium right now. Mm -hmm. As At the I end, do. say it again. I do too. I See, that's agree. okay. Okay. Yeah. Put a pin in that because I got to come sure. back to that. So, <laughs> that's so a good I would say at the end of this current period, or at least near the end of it, that we are currently in, Satan, who is currently bound with respect to his ability to deceive the nations. Right. So you've got the pre Christian era. Mm -hmm. in which the nations were pagan. They were, I just was, I just had uh, Michael Heiser on my podcast yesterday. Ooh. Um, yes. I'll listen to that. Oh, it's good. Really mm -hmm. good. We went, yeah. it was over, like it was like two and a half hours. It was epic. Excellent. Um, but we, um, we talked about how in the pre-Christian era, the nations were given over to the lowercase g gods. Right. In the Christian era though, their rule has been delegitimized. They've been dethroned. And this is why you've got, you know, a couple of Gentiles like you and me, at least looking at you, it seems like yeah. you know, yep. <laughs> I don't think you're part of the tribe. I, although I found out I, I do have a little bit of Jewish ancestry, just a little oh. bit. And my um, my wife and my wife is Jewish. My kids are more Jewish than me. Hmm. But there's a reason why we we Gentiles are now worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's because the the uh, because Satan has been bound with respect. The strong man has been bound. Yep. Jesus is, has now gone into the strong man's house and he's pilfering the mm. strong man 
taking what belonged to him. Yeah. Taking us Gentiles and yeah. and and the elect Jewish people as right. well, bringing them out, and and uh, at the end of this period, Satan is going to be unbound mm -hmm. with respect. And by the way, we look around at society. Maybe maybe we're headed there now. I don't know for sure, mm -hmm. but there does seem to be a lot of deception. We can talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like at the end of this era, things are at least. If if not going to decline, at the very least, the battle is going to reach a fever pitch. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem, biblically speaking, like I can get to the point where things are going to get better, 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 approaching something like a golden age, and then mm -hmm. Jesus is going to come back. It sure seems like things are going to get better. Satan is then going to be released. You've got mm -hmm. the locusts that are going to be released, and I'm something of a historicist as well, so maybe mm -hmm. the locusts have already been released. Maybe that's something yeah. different. But it does seem like there's at least going to be a fever pitch battle until the very end, not an ever-increasing ascendancy of gospel culture making, and then Jesus is going to come back. So help me mm -hmm. see what you see in Scripture that I don't yeah. see sure. and, and how you got there. Well, I'm a preterist, and I do think that matters in how you would— look at some of the things that you're talking about. Some of the last days talk, what are we talking about? Right. Are we talking about the last days of old covenant Israel? Are we talking about uh, the soon to come? This is soon to come upon you. All the imminency yes. language of revelation, yes. which, you know, brings, there's all kinds of cans of worms there. Was revelation written pre 70 as I think it was or nineties AD. So there are all kinds of hermeneutical and other questions that come into play. But really simply when I think, when I think through all the different categories that you're talking about, there, there's, there's a genuine tension in the scriptures between this increasing slowly language and this exile, um, persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the, you know, watering the, the tree of the church, that sort of thing. And I would say yes to both of those things, but I would tend to interpret the the meta story of the scriptures through the the picture of Daniel and the and Isaiah where you have the stone that topples the statue of empire at the coming of Christ which I think we all agree on that uh, and he establishes this mountain that covers the earth uh, and what is that well in Isaiah it says that Jesus comes and he's the the government will be on his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of peace there'll be no end. Uh, and then, okay, what is that? Well, it's clearly the kingdom of God by the time Jesus starts preaching that to us, which is not of this world, meaning it didn't, it doesn't have its origins in this world or the systems of this world, but it is emphatically invading this world, colonizing this world, right. it's plundering a, the house. It's a rock that was not carved out by human hands. Right. Yeah. It's the Lord Jesus who is the church in Coet, he's the people of God in a person. And then that expands as we're, you know, he's reconstituting a people in himself. And, you know, we get all these pictures, the kingdom parables are so important to me in because they match up with this picture. So the first thing I do is I establish this, okay, this is the story of the kingdom of God. And I think you told it really well that Satan had the nations bound. It was his house. He offered it to Christ. Kneel before me, Matthew 4. Jesus is the test passing human, not the test failing human like Israel and Adam. And so he dethrones Satan in John. He says that the ruler of this world is cast out, ekbal, same Greek word used for casting him into the... We agree on all, the, all these things, I think. And uh, he's bound the strong man. He's plundering his house, which is the nations. 
And so there's going to be through this whole age, both cosmic conflict that is demonic and spiritual in nature, as well as human conflict that has spiritual elements. And that will persist until the end. But I think that the, the line for me between a post-millennialism that is amillennial, because we're both post-mill, we both believe Christ returns after the millennium, uh, that is... Yes, but post-mill we, does have a technical... Yeah. Don't let me into your... your yeah, your, your, <laughs> I'm trying to get you in. I know you're if trying to... If I can to, define you into semantics. my camp. You're trying to define <laughs> me in. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, we have... I think the dividing line where you pass from I'm Amil or an optimistic Amillenarian or whatever you want to say into you're now into some degree of post-millennialism proper is that how much of the world at the return of Christ is going to be Christian? How many Christians are there going to be? And I take all those kingdom parables and I look at the, the wheat and the tares again and I say, it's going to be a wheat field. It's going to be more Christians than not. And all the implications yeah. of that will be true as well. I, I got to say, I... I like that. I think I join believe us. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So let me tell you how uh, how, sure. how post mill was defined for me when I first learned about these schemes. Yeah. And and maybe this is just a matter of semantics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the way it was first defined for me was this: the the uh, the kingdom of God, or, or maybe the the success of evangelism, is going to be so prevalent that the world will enter into some kind of golden age as mm-hmm. as you mentioned that and i've heard that term sure uh used to the extent that the majority of people on earth will be christian and at so here's the, here's where I, maybe may, i don't know if you agree with this or not no i guess you don't at that point the millennium begins mm. i don't hold that view okay okay no. see that's mm-hmm. that's always been the sticking point for me it's that yeah. christ um, he 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 rules from heaven, mm-hmm. and that rule basically the millennial rule described mm-hmm. in Revelation twenty, yeah, begins once Earth hits that tipping point. And mm-hmm. my contention is that no, the rule of Christ began at the ascension. And Amen. I just had I had Patrick Schreiner on here a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago to talk about the ascension of Christ. Brilliant, he's got an amazing yeah. book. He's a brilliant scholar. Yeah, and we talked about the the ascension started a new era mm-hmm. in human history. Yes. And so right now earth has a king, an mm-hmm. actual king. That king is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. He's ruling over heaven and earth. We can't see him, mm-hmm. but we can see the effects of his reign through his scepter being extended. I think that's Psalm two or Psalm one ten. his, his scepter is being extended out into the earth. He's reigning in the midst of his enemies as mm-hmm. Shai Lin put it in uh, his song, the millennium. Um, where it, it talks about Jesus is reigning in the midst of his enemies. His scepter is being extended out into the world. But I, see, I view that as an amillennial contention. Mm-hmm. Where, but are you saying that that's what you believe as a post millennial guy? Yeah, I know people who believe both of those who are would consider themselves post millennial. Um, honestly, I think, and this isn't original to me, but the millennium is is just a, a strange thing that we've ended up dividing all of our eschatological systems around. This one passage in Revelation 20, and we've kind of made it the the, the separating distinctive element. Right. Because to me, Revelation 20 is clearly describing a scene in heaven that is taking place right now that has been since the enthronement. You know, like Matthew 24 now is the when you see the sign of the Son of Man seated in heaven, uh, which 
that's the enthronement of Christ. I'm a preterist, so I'm tipping my cards there again. But so, wait, wait, are you full full preterist or partial preterist? Well, I mean, orthodox preterist. I I refuse to let the heretics have that term and have to qualify it, but okay. not the heretical kind. No. So you don't believe that the second coming of Christ has already happened? No, no, the no. Heresy no. has not happened. Just no. Just just so that no one can slander you later right. on after they That's, watch it. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I would say that the Olivet Discourse in the Book of Revelation are primarily concerned with the covenantal divorce and judgment of Old Covenant Israel in 70 AD, including okay. the, the literal Greek translation of the phrase, when you see the sign of the Son of Man seated in heaven, not the sign, you know, the, the Son of Man in, in the heavens, basically. That, okay. That's speaking of the enthronement of Christ, yes. which is... It obviously took place at his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, enthronement. And yeah. to me, the millennium of Revelation 20 is now describing this entire age. Yeah. But, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that this golden age has been conflated with the millennium is there are definitely lots of post-millennialists who speak that way, but it's not an exegetically warranted association mm. because Revelation 20 isn't talking about a future period of the world where the majority are Christian. I, I, I'm more would say that it's it's speaking of this whole present age, but then I would bring in other passages of scripture that seem to characterize this present age as an increasing leavening of the world with the kingdom of God, yeah. such that by the time the Lord returns, this project of evangelism will have resulted in uh, a largely Christian world prior yeah. to his return. So I'm not waiting for a tipping point where the millennium begins. Okay. I, I think okay. it already began. Okay, so so I I don't see any disagreements between us there. Then, mm -hmm. um, and you know the the Think Institute is under the umbrella of Crew Campus mm -hmm. Crusade for Christ, and uh, you know at Crew as a Crew missionary, we want to see the the completion of the Great Commission. Yeah. So and we believe that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so um, so that being said, though. Um, do you believe that the do you believe that it's possible that the Great Commission has been fulfilled to an extent that Jesus could come back imminently? He could come back even tonight. He could come back today. Uh, I would say that it's not likely. Okay. I don't. I don't think that the return of Christ is imminent in that way, um, because I think there's still work to be done, not the discrete fulfilling of prophecies in the way that like a pre-tribulational dispensationalist would say, well, yeah, we haven't seen uh, this happen. The yeah, Russia's right. got to join up with the oh, Arab yeah. uh, nation. Gog and Magog. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. not in that way, but in the sense that uh, there's still quite a bit of work to be done. I think we still, this, this pattern and picture and story that we see of the kingdom of God and its expansion, I think there's still much work to be done. Could Jesus return? Absolutely. Like, I'm not saying that definitely here's my proof text. He's not, but my suspicion instinct based on those, my reading of those texts would be that we're not imminently waiting for the return of Christ um, today or tomorrow necessarily. Okay. Okay. So that's a good baseline. I think mm -hmm. And by the way, we've got a lot of people commenting right now asking. Oh. So we're going to, we're going to, so if, if you've been commenting, keep watching in a few minutes. Um, I'm going to just sick all your questions loose on Brian and, uh, and let him answer them. But Brian, that's a good foundation. I think for us to talk about this vision that you have, which is so compelling in Ogden, Utah, who, 
let me ask you this. Who are you influenced by? Mm-hmm. And um, and what do you think is behind this current trend? And I, well, and let me ask you this too. Do you see a trend right now of similarly motivated guys who are trying to create and build Christian cultures? And what do you think is behind that trend? If you, if you agree that there is a trend. I do believe there's a trend. And I would locate that trend, especially in two places that both go back to similar roots, though not identical roots. I think we see in Moscow, Idaho, uh, that what those brothers have been building for 30 or 35 years at this point is the, the, the fruit of it is starting to prove out. And it's very much a Kuyperian, post-millennial, culturally maximalist, theologically maximalist, centered around the local church, centered around the potency of Christian worship, all these different elements, keeping your kids education-focused, starting schools, starting businesses. The, the fruit of that is starting to prove out to where now you can actually see the third generation where, where you know, like Doug and Nancy have believing grandchildren. Um, where you start to see some of the disciples who came up under this system go into their own pastoral ministry and other ministry, Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, those kinds of guys, and a lot of other people. And because of the fact that they've built and owned their own microphones, and they're very difficult to cancel, culturally speaking, Aaron Wren, the masculinist, recently did a great email on this. You could go check out. Um, Because of all those things, uh, the Lord, I think, has started to just bring more ears to those voices. And ha- people are particularly looking at the fruit. The other one I would say is apologia, which is very different in a lot of ways. Um, but they are very influential in similar ways. Owning their own microphones, culturally maximalist, politically engaged, post-millennial, um, but also reformed and very much for a, uh, a robust Protestant reformed. Vi- Basically, apologia is like a tattooed version of angels in the architecture hmm. with uh, I- with more emphasis on cultural I- engagement in the abortion world versus education. But that's even there's some convergence. Do, do, think, uh, you're talking about Doug Wilson's book, Angels in the Architecture? Yes, yes, sorry. His Protestant Vision for Middle Earth, which is a yeah. great book. And, and it, it explains a lot of what they're doing. For the uninitiated, mm-hmm. Apologia is Jeff Durbin's ministry out that's right. located in, in, in or near Phoenix. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. yeah. Because of the abortion and Mormonism evangelism, we've connected quite a bit as they've mm-hmm. been here in Utah and partnered on some different things. Um, but that those two those two movements for sure, because of the uh, amplifying effect of the internet, mm-hmm. have been able to light a fire in communities around the world. Yeah, and Jason Fest has just commented absolutely as the Ezra Institute with Bill yes. Boot, who absolutely I I just booked. Uh, he's going to be coming on yes. to this show on on uh, Wednesday, September thirtieth. So, Doctor Reverend Doctor Joe Boot. Yes. If you uh, so, Jason. Anyone else who is a fan of of Joe Boot, or if you don't like me using the word fan, I had somebody correct me for using the word fan. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm only a fanatic for Jesus. Okay, yeah, we're not worshiping sure. the guy, but if you appreciate his work, yeah, watch on September 30th because he will be showing up. So, um, yeah, th- that's interesting because with the Ezra Institute, Apologia, and also I, I I hope you'd agree, Apologia, and the way that they've linked up with. James White and um, yes. Alpha and Omega over there right. in Phoenix. And then, like you said, Doug Wilson and his 
And uh, I joked with Doug Wilson. Uh, he's been on our mm -hmm. show twice. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I joked with him about people describe his empire. And I asked him if that, <laughs> if, is that, is that an accurate way of des describing what you've got up there? And he, he agreed. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you, you know, you know you've sorry, got three different going. iterations there mm -hmm. and, and yet they're all kind of, would you say that they're all in the same stream of, of this current trend? Yes. They're tributaries of the same stream and that you can follow that river upstream to Greg Bonson. David Chilton, Reconstructionists, okay. Abraham Kuyper, uh, you can, you know, all sphere sovereignty and the, these ideas back to the Puritans and Joe Boot, his mission of God book is deeply concerned with seeing Puritan theology, which yes. applied today, which you would say Greg Bonson would have described his project similarly. Um, so this stream is not new. People think maybe this is like an internet phenomena, but it's, it's not, this is very much just Puritan theology and its cultural ramifications as applied to an age with internet, I think is what you're seeing. So it's important for people to see that because some, some guys would, some people would maybe mistakenly identify this as a recent internet-based sort of craze. They might connect it to Mark Driscoll. He was very much culturally maximalist in his applicational preaching. Um, but it's not, those are tributaries. Those are streams off of the great river of Puritan political theology, Puritan all of Christ for all of life theology. And Doug would say that. He would say, I'm not trying, I'm trying to do Westminster Confession Protestantism on fire and robustly alive today. And that's what he would describe his whole project as, I think. So we're just, we're just connected to that. We're not aiming to reinvent anything in Ogden. We're just saying, yep, that's, we see that in scripture. We see it bearing fruit in history. We're a part of this tradition, discovering that we are a part of this tradition that we didn't even know about until we started to come to some of these conclusions from scripture. And then we went, yeah, these are our people and uh, let's do it. Awesome. So we've got a few comments here. Sure. And uh, I, I have a feeling some of these are gonna take us off in some other directions, but sure. Um, quick shout out to you, Dimitri, Mala says, love Brian Sove's Psalm 3 song. Hmm. And uh, and yeah, I think, is that the one that you posted a couple days ago? That's the, uh, I forget what you, it's, it's Psalm 3 and long meter or something long like that. Long meter. Yeah, yeah, long, long meter. meter. Yeah. I'm going to try to get some more of the original Psalms and hymn settings that I've done on YouTube. But man, starting a school is a big project. So <laughs> busy right now. Man, we but yeah. Okay. So we got to talk about that in a minute. So let's, let's sure. definitely put a pin in that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Dimitri Mala also says that that is my question. Also, why are my friends going post millennial? Look, Dimitri, it's because they reject the authority of scripture and, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, they, they see something in scripture that, um, quite honestly, I think a lot of us see, I think that some of the conclusions are, are different, but I, I find myself as a, as a self-described optimistic amillennialist, very much on the same team as yeah. a lot of the post-millennials, post-millenarians or millennialists who, yeah, who are seeking to build Christian cultures. I, I think, yeah. man, uh, later on, maybe I can tell you about what we're hoping to do in, mm. in our, our new location as well. Um, Okay, Jason Fest says this. He says, post-millennialism holds that Jesus Christ established his mediatorial kingdom by his death, 
resurrection, and ascension to the heavenly throne. And as the second Adam rules over all creation until the end of the world, when he shall come again to judge the living and the dead, that he is conquering all nations by the gospel, extending the fruits of his victory throughout the world, thereby fulfilling the dominion mandate originally given by God to Adam. And eventually through the outpouring, let's see, it continues. Uh, you know what? I don't have the rest of that comment, but uh, based on what you see there, Brian, do you, do you agree with that? I was, I was, if I had the chalk Knox preach organ, I would have been playing it. <laughs> Because I didn't, you know, an influential book for me was David Chilton's um, Paradise Restored that American Vision has a, a reprinting of up now. Um, that that book was very, very helpful in connecting some dots that have been floating unconnected in my head. And then th that book combined with G.K. Beale's Temple and the Church's Mission really just threaded some needles for me. And that paragraph sounds a lot like that book. Okay. Okay, good. Um, you know, one of the big things, just a quick sidebar here, one of the big things that's keeping me from uh, from post-mill, from the post-millennialist view, mm -hmm. is the necessity of living as though Christ's return, return could be imminent right. at any moment. You know, when Jesus talks about, uh, is it Matthew 24, when he talks about the destruction of the temple, mm -hmm. and then he talks about, but, and he says that this, he essentially says the destruction of the temple, and I'm a, I'm a uh, what you would call an orthodox preterist as well. Mm -hmm. But I'm sort of I'm sort of inconsistent, or I would say more consistent. But you might say mm -hmm. I'm inconsistent because I do see some of those prophecies being fulfilled in history as well. So if you were to ask me who the the Antichrist is, I don't think it's Nero. I think that it's the Pope. Um, mm, okay. Yeah, but um, but even though Nero is a type of Antichrist, but. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when Jesus talks, he says, on that day, or he says, but as for as for that day, meaning the culmination, the, the per parousia, the second coming of Christ, no one knows the day or the hour. And mm -hmm. on that day, it'll come like a thief in the night. People will be marrying, given in marriage. Mm -hmm. um, it'll come very unexpectedly. And mm -hmm. so I hear that and I... Whereas the destruction of Jerusalem was not going to come unexpectedly. There was a 40-year window in which that could come because there was there was one generation um, that that had to still be alive when, uh, the, you know, the present generation had to still be alive when Jesus came uh, in that regard, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. So, oh, and there were all those signs. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see the, uh, the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, yeah. Uh, where the corpse is, the eagles will gather. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a prophecy about Titus, the Roman general, gathering his troops around Jerusalem, the court. Yeah. Yeah. And the eagle standard of Rome was, you know, uh, was the sign. As the troops moved in, the residents of Jerusalem would have seen the standard of Rome being the eagle gathering around the corpse of Jerusalem. And the, the believers knew at that time they needed to get out of Dodge. And they did. They understood Jesus's um, prophecy. But Jesus says, but as for that day, as for the culmination of all things, the return of the Son of Man in final judgment, final judgment, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. And so um, so for that reason, I see the second coming of Christ and the, the subsequent resurrection of the dead 
as being one of those events you can't possibly pin down, mm -hmm. even to the extent of saying something like, we need this many nations to be evangelized. Sure. We need this, you know, this percentage of the world needs to be converted and Christian, Christianized before that can happen. I say, no, it, it, it could happen today. It has to be able to happen at any moment in order for Christ's prediction to make sense. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with, with that as a, as a, when I say I don't suspect, I, I really do mean I don't suspect. I don't have a, a proof text where I'm going to say, no, he can't. There's absolutely no way because this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. I think that as I read the story, especially of those parables of the kingdom and Daniel, that um, we shouldn't, that we, we don't have good reason to suspect that he's going to come back right now. Again, I think the, that we'll see. There are lots of unreached people groups in the world today that I think we'll see reached before and again it could be a, a whole lot of time before that comes um but i also know you know preterists disagree on how much of matthew 24 and there are lots of preterists who would also see that section of matthew as describing um the covenant judgment the coming in judgment of christ on old old covenant israel and that sort of thing i need to brush up a little bit it's been a minute since i've gone through there i'm going to sure. get there i'm preaching matthew right now oh and okay. um, i'm in matthew Three? No, I'm in Matthew four. I'm going to be wrapping up Matthew four, right on. Lord willing, this Sunday. But um, yeah, that, I mean that's that's definitely within the realm of what I would say is a possible correct interpretation of that passage, and uh, one of the options on the table. And I'm when I think of when I think of the project that we're involved in and the things we're we're told to do as a church, um, I find it easy to link arms with amillenarians with pre-mill folks of the dispensational or the historic variety, provided they haven't walled off some arbitrary section of life into a kind of secular or neutral ghetto or then I'm like, let's do it. You know, let's, 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 we'll see what happens. We'll see how successful this thing is. But if we, can we agree on the mission that we're supposed to be doing today? And if, if it's yes, then I say, let's go for it. Love it. Yeah. I love it. And I, I love that idea of cultural maximalism. Mm -hmm. How do you define that, by the way? Yeah, cultural maximalism is just a way that we were trying to put a label on that idea that when Christ saves a person, he saves every part of their humanity. So, you know, when, when we are saved, the Lord didn't just give us a clean soul. He saved, you know, our intellect was fallen. It's been freed and changed. It's being changed. It's being conformed to the, to the word. Uh, what we do with our hands and our vocation and our families, all that's changed. And so taking the, taking just the idea of what culture even is basically the, and again, none of this is original. Doug, Doug Wilson said all this better than I ever will, but the culture is the externalization of our externalizing of our worship and our, our religious values as applied to everything. It's true of atheists and it's true of Christians. So, we should expect if, if Christ really is giving us a new heart and giving us his word that's sufficient for every good work in all of life, for all of Christ, all these different areas, we should expect for the, the culture that flows out of our fingertips in churches and households to be different on every level and in every place than the non-Christian or the Hindu or the, you know, the Muslim, the Mormon. So what we mean by that is that we're intentionally pursuing obedience to Christ and fruitfulness for Christ by grace and through faith in every area of life. Man, and that's that's very compelling, Brian. Um, 
you know, we got a comment from Nate Werner mm -hmm. who says this, he says, I will be finishing my PhD in mechanical engineering, studying bugs relatively soon. Wow. Uh, Nate, you'll have to describe what you mean. Do you mean literal insects or that, that can't be mechanical engineering, studying bugs? Maybe um, failure I, modes of mechanical systems, bugs in the system. <laughs> that that sounds a lot more likely. Uh, Nate, maybe you can give a follow-up comment on what you mean by that. But he says, I'm not sure what my wife and I could offer to help in Ogden if God allowed. What could we offer specifically? I think this is a response to that tweet that I read, mm. uh, your tweet, Brian, calling for people to get involved in Ogden. How would you answer, Nate? Well, I would say you need to move to Utah for sure. I mean, just off right off the top there. Let's no, go. I, I would love to, to for a family like that to, to move, to jump in, not to rob other places that need you as well. But if the Lord would lead you to move, the way that we would want to get you connected would be to say, okay, well, we need, the, the church is a household of households. You're a mechanical engineer. You have a great trade vocation that you can pursue whether working for one of the many contractors or my brother and my, my brother's a mechanical engineer. My dad's an electrical engineer. Um, whether you work for somebody else and any of those and, and you just pursue culturally maximalist Christianity in your household uh, in, as a part of this church and raise your kids and hopefully get behind and push the plow and starting a school with us and uh, help, you, you know, just on every level participate in the church. Um, you would fit right in. You would fit right in in a place like Ogden with what we're trying to do, because we're not trying to make uh, like I think that one of the the wrong tendencies that that we can have in the church is what I can't remember if it's Joe Boot or someone else who talks about an ecclesiocracy, um, where when we think about the kingdom of God and the church, we just think about the institutional, the institution of the church, the elders, the worship, the activities of preaching the scriptures, administering the sacraments, uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but that's, a, I think, a not fully orbed picture of the life that we're called to live. So if you came to Utah, what we would love to see you do is um, pursue to work heartily for the Lord as, and not for men within your vocation. Consider joining together with other people in your industry and starting your own thing. You know, go win a contract, go start your own thing so you can own your own microphone. Um, I was just talking with the Matt at How to Build a Tent podcast recently, and um, we were talking about how employers pay you less than they're making from you. On That's, you know, that's why they're employing you. And so if Christians can build their own things, whether that's engineering or technology or commerce or food or art or music or logistics or recreation, whatever it is, whatever industry you're in, if you can build your own thing, take the risk, yeah, you have a likelihood you might fail. But if you succeed, you might end up doing the sort of thing that has gravity, uh, which is to say that you will be able to employ other people and you'll be able to keep more of the Proto, the produce of your hands. And you'll be able to, through the tithe, bless and support things like a school. Uh, you'd be able to, uh, you know, the gravity intergenerationally to say, when my kids grow up, I don't want my kids, you know, the Lord could call them, but I don't want my kids to just default, go to college, move away and start somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see our community have the kind of gravity that over 30 years or so, the fruit would be, they stay, they keep reinvesting, 
because you can't reach a place like really most any city, but you definitely can't reach a place like Utah unless you are building a people that are rooted, hard to cancel, hard to move, own their own microphones, own their own vocational revenue streams mm. and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, Nate, call me. Awesome. Love it. And you know what he did specify? Get this. He wrote a follow-up comment. He says, yes, real insects. I study their flight, specifically the vortex structures. So that's wow. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. You okay. need to write a book and own the evolutionary biologists. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah listen, there you go. now is the right time yeah. to take on evolution because it's, <laughs> that's a theory that's dead in the water. It's uh, most, most don't know it. You, Brian, you're probably aware of this, but um, the, uh, the th theory of the, the neo-Darwinian explanation for yeah. the species uh, is completely dead in the water. The yeah. Royal Society of London has admitted that that's mm -hmm. going on three years now since that's yep. been, it's, that's been admitted. It's just, they don't have a workable theory that doesn't involve the God no. of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> they have no mechanism for providing all this genetic richness for natural right. selection. Natural selection is a grist mill, and it, it has no grist right now right. to grind. How do you get genetic variation? The more we even learn about, and Nate probably knows way more about this than we do, but the more you, we, we learn about even epigenetic, epigenetics, the, the outside of the gene factors that are influencing how an organism develops and reproduces. It's like, we're just figuring out like we figure out with everything as we go down the endeavor of science that we don't know anything that we're like toddlers colorings in and out of the lines with our crayons when it comes to things like understanding biology and man. So Nate, we need you get to work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So we've got a few more comments on here. Mm. Um, let me, let me throw one more up and then I'd love yeah. to hear you talk about your school that you're starting. Sure. And kind of cast a vision for that a little bit. So Dimitri Mala asks this, mm. why do we see a decline of Christianity in the Western world? How does this fit in with your eschatology? This is actually a good question for both mm. of us as we both are, are optimistic, I think in our, our outlooks, but what do you think, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, the story of our decline has been greatly exaggerated in some ways, um, because when you look at, so there's absolutely decline. There's sexual folly that's taken root, that's bearing fruit now. It was in the planting and pruning stages in the probably the 30s through the 60s and 70s. And now we're in the reaping of the harvest phase of it, especially when it comes to the, our anthropology. All of the issues of today are anthropological, the battlefronts. What is a person? What is a man? What is a woman? What is sex? How, what is it for? Uh, are there any boundaries on, on, on our humanity? Can we become like transhumanist uh, Elon Musk? Can we just uh, uh, transcend our humanity and become something other than humanity? Can I invent, can I own my own entry in the dictionary? Transgenderism and these kinds of things. So there's definite decline. But one, one thing I think that we, we need to remember is that all who hate wisdom love death. So as you give yourself wholeheartedly to sexual folly, you're hating lady wisdom and you're going to die. So provided that there are Christians who are having and keeping their children, they'll inherit the West to the extent that we have our children and give them to secular institutions to be discipled and we lose them then yeah, we'll, we'll continue to see 
loss and failure. Right. But I'm very optimistic about the West. I'm very, yeah. because I think a lot of the world is going to be increasingly tipped off to the catastrophic death cult that um, secularism is. And consequently, any kind of vision of Christian theology and political engagement that calls that a neutral sphere instead of what it really is, a battleground of gods. So I would say that. I would also say think long. You know, post-millennialists are not thinking in terms of, like, I, I would be unsurprised if in the fullness of time there are 40,000 more years of history. Complete, that would not surprise me whatsoever. So it's not a line graph going from left to right. Let's see if I can do this the correct way on the, oop, no, there you go. It's not like that. It's more like, and then uh, out of the ashes. Yeah a new thing. And we've seen that over and over in the West. I think we'll see it many times again. No, that, that's very good. And you know, John Frame has talked about this in terms of apologetics. Mm -hmm. If you, you can trace the development of the church's apologetical method from the earliest apologists like Justin Martyr and, mm -hmm. you know, through Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, uh, the, you know, uh, Calvin, and then up into the, the modern day with um, even uh, Cornelius Van Til, John Frame himself, uh, Greg Bonson, whom you mentioned earlier, the church is learning how to think and argue in a more biblical way. Mm -hmm. And it's really remarkable because in in many ways, there's a lot we can learn from the early church, but you don't want to do apologetics the way Justin Martyr did. Hmm. You don't want to do apologetics. Anselm was brilliant, don't get me wrong, but the apologetic method of Saiten Bruggenkate mm -hmm. is a lot more biblical than even Thomas Aquinas. Now, are, yeah. are we comparing intellects here? I don't know that Sai would want me to compare no, you you know, uh, his intellect with Aquinas, who would, but there's something very beautiful and very brilliant about simply trusting God's word and developing a greater reliance on on scripture. And so when you so you can you can trace that upward climb of the church's apologetic method and, and uh, in terms of, you know, how biblical we are, I'm viewing, you know, more Biblicism, greater Biblicism would be an upward uh, motion on the y-axis there, mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know both faithfulness and effectiveness. But the same, I'd like to say that the same is true for the Christian's approach to culture, which is a little tricky because I'm not one of these guys. I don't look back to the glory days of Christendom and say we need to return to that. I'm very much more one of these guys that says we need to look forward, not backward. We're not trying to go back to the old sacral system where That's the right. church and the state was, uh, you know, Catholicism has the has this view of hard subsidiarity mm -hmm. where the church is at the pinnacle of all governments. And then the church, uh, the the state government sort of get their authority from the church mm. in a, you know, in a, in a declining series of umbrellas. Yeah. Um, I'm very much more, you mentioned Kuiper earlier. I'm very yeah. much a, a Kuiperian guy. I do believe in separate spheres, but those separate spheres, while that's not the same thing as a theocracy or an ecclesiocracy where the church is, and I might be using the word ecclesiocracy differently than maybe how Joe Boot uses it, but the, it's not like the church is over the state. Instead, church, state, and family, and self-governance are all defined and informed by scripture. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the state is drawing its authority, its view of its own authority from scripture. Yeah. Same thing with the church, same thing with the family and the household, same thing with the self. And over time, I, I love what you said, Brian, because I, I want to see that. I want to see all three spheres of authority increasingly informed by scripture. And yeah. I love this idea of the Phoenix rising from the ashes. And I, I don't see any way around that happening because as you put it, this new way of thinking, and it's really not new, it's as old as yeah. Cain, yeah. you know, it's yep. the, 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 you, you, yeah. you, whoever does not gather with me scatters, Jesus says. Yeah. So you either build up with Christ or you tear down with Satan, but mm -hmm. tearing down, which is really the ethos that's behind critical theory, you can't build a civilization on that. So mm -hmm. abortion, yeah. critical theory, um, radical environmentalism, which is very mm -hmm. anti-humanist. Yep. All they can do is destroy. Whereas the Christian worldview, the Christian message, the biblical ethos builds up. Mm -hmm. Jesus talked about building your house on the rock. Yeah. Uh, w which the implication there is that if you build your house on Christ's teachings, it will last, it will be permanent. Mm -hmm. So, Brian, what, what inspires me and encourages me about what you're doing in Ogden, Utah, is you seem to want to build on the solid foundation of Christ's mm -hmm. teaching so that when society collapses around us, when the public schools fail, um, or at the very least, the ethos driving the public schools collapses, and, uh, and, and the worldview that is associated with that all collapses, you'll be there in Ogden, Doug Wilson will be there and his descendants will be there in, um, in Moscow. Yeah. Jeff Durbin and, and his crew will be there in, um, in uh, Phoenix, Lord yeah. willing. Uh, the think Institute yeah. will be here in uh, greater Chicagoland. And that's, what's going to rebuild. And we're not rebuilding the past. We're building forward into the future. That's right. Yes. That's right. You know, when we, I think a lot of the time, this culturally maximalist Puritan theological vision for all of Christ, for all of life that we've been talking about now for an hour, people do associate it with what we want to do is go back to the Puritan era. And it's like, no, if you, for example, just read something like Albion's Seed, this book that traces um, British folkways in America and how it culturally influenced America. One of them is the Puritan folkway in New England, in Puritan New England. As you hear it, you go, there's a lot there that is really compelling to me and biblical. And then there's also a lot there that is not good, that's chaff that needs to be blown away, bad thinking about politics and sex and bad thinking about other things. When we say rebuilding in the ruins of Christendom, what we're saying is at the foundation, we're trying to do the same thing they were but we're now doing it with the benefit of having 500 more years of thinking on these things. And also I think in certain ways, greater development of things like how the spheres of authority do relate to one another. So that I'm very optimistic, you know, I'm very optimistic about how this could look as particularly with something like education, where you say, if we could, if we could start, you know, talk about a force multiplier, where one, one guy that gets it or 20, 20 families that get it have a couple kids each, not even quiverful. You know, they just have a couple kids each and they, they give them this education, this rich uh, human education, all of Christ for all of life. 
And then they go off and they pursue Christ as these little modern Puritans and in whatever places the Lord sends them, man, that's like a dandelion getting blown to the wind. And it's going to take root in a lot of places in unexpected ways that we don't even know what the Lord is going to do with our grandkids. But I think we, the rumor of our decline is, is exaggerated it, and we're we're failing to see with the eyes of faith what God can do with the days of small beginnings in yeah. the midst of hardship. Man, that's good. That's good. Well, you, th- you think about all the different ways we have to multiply. Mm-hmm. So we we have children. Mm-hmm. We disciple our kids. And quick plug for my book, Catechids. This is a mm-hmm. uh, uh, catechism that I wrote for my own kids that um, I self published and. Um, a lot of churches and other families have found it useful as well, but there's plenty of other resources out there, but we disciple our own kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Christians adopt more than anybody. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Even, even by having kids through, uh, through, ne- uh, biological means through adoption by not aborting our kids. Right. And then by taking ownership of our own children's education and discipleship, by not giving our kids over to Caesar, to the mm-hmm. state, simply through, um, creating schools, through homeschooling, classical Christian schooling, um, uh, you know, other new creative ways of schooling, whether it's online, through networks, co-ops, things like that. And then you couple all that with just plain old evangelism, right? Sharing the gospel with your neighbor, sharing the gospel with, you know, when you, when you sell something on, on uh, Facebook marketplace and you give mm-hmm. the person a tract, you know, when, mm-hmm. when you evangelize your neighbors and have them over for dinner and share the hope you have in Christ with them. And then, and then to bring in this other element that you're talking about of Christian culture building, where you're intentionally building institutions and, and uh, building a rival culture to the mainstream culture. Mm-hmm. Bro, how can we possibly lose? Yeah. <laughs> We've got the Holy Spirit of God coursing yeah. through our own spirit. Like we can't yeah. lose. Amen. That's right. It, it and it might look like a David and Goliath moment. There's so many times where where the idealist view of scripture has merit, where you see this, these pictures and patterns replaying over and over and over in history of the the mustard seed in the, you know, in the world. <laughs> and it's like, who wins? Well, the mustard seed wins. The David and Goliath, you could just go right. on and on. This is the nature of how God displays his glory in his people is by stacking the deck against them and then waiting and then, and then going, just watch what I'm about to do. And then some black swan thing that we don't even know. That's where I'm like, I, I, I don't want to try to predict the future in any other, like non, other than Broadway, because the thing that God is going to do in the West to bring some massive revival or it's going to be some, maybe the coronavirus. It's going to be something that we, yeah. we would not see coming. Cause he's yeah. just, he's a better story. He's a better playwright, better author than we could ever think of. Bro, but you're right. Like we're going to win. Bro, 3000 people gathered on the beach today or yesterday or the day before <laughs> in California to get baptized. What? 3000. I'm going to see if I can pull that up. Yeah. Uh, now, look, I don't know anything about the church that's doing this. I don't know how orthodox they are. Um, sure. But that's something. Uh, that's okay, not nothing. That's <laughs> not nothing. Okay. It's definitely not uh, nothing. Let's see. Was it 3,000? Maybe it was 1,000. Okay, September 12th. Okay, no, no, no. It was 1,000. I, I misspoke. I'm going to pull this up here. So this is... Um, Okay, so this is in Orange County, California, mm-hmm. not too far away from where John MacArthur is currently taking on the Goliath of the tyrannical yeah. state out there. 
Yeah. Um, let me see if I can, if I can get, this is from the Christian post and um, look at this. Okay. No. Yeah. I don't want to subscribe. Okay. <laughs> uh, nearly 1000 people baptized in California's latest quote, spiritual revival, end quote. A record number of baptisms took place at a beach in Orange County over the weekend as believers professed their faith in Jesus Christ at Southern California's latest spiritual revival. Uh, and looks like the church is, oh, would you look it's at Calvary this, Brian? Yep. Calvary Chapel. I now, was going to could... say, that sounds, that's out of Calvary Chapel's playbook right there. Is it really? It is, totally. Jesus movement, they were baptizing upwards of 900 people a day in the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s and god god i mean did an, an amazing work through calvary chapel amen yeah my dad came to faith in uh the 70s during the jesus movement actually my father-in-law wow. as well my wife's dad. yeah that's um, amazing yeah so so the lord is is definitely still working would you um oh real quick because we yeah. had this question jason fest asked where will this conversation be available so you can get this conversation on our facebook page which is it's it's on facebook if you type in the think institute all one word you can find it there also you can find it on our youtube channel just type in think institute and it'll come up also in one week i'll have posted this on the think podcast which is available on all the major podcast apps apple google spotify uh, Stitcher, you name it, we're, we're on all of them. So check that out. And then um, if you want more great content like this, definitely subscribe to the Think Podcast, but subscribe to Stump the Pastors uh, with Brian Sovey as well. And I found that earlier today. Just type in Brian Sovey's name. Make sure you put the little accent aigu, aigu. in front of, in front of the, uh, or on top of the, the E and, and yeah. that'll pull up his podcast. Brian, could you tell us about the school that you're starting? Sure. Yeah, we are fall 2021, Lord willing, um, opening whatever size school happens to be needed for the students that actually show up here in somewhere between January and March of this coming year. And so we're Lord willing, we're, we're hoping that that would be covering from about age six to 18. So first grade through 12th grade. And um, we're building that school on a classical Christian model, not reinventing the wheel. Um, kind of running a hybrid between, and, and not everybody will know these terms, but between kind of an Ambleside model of classical and some of the modern Dorothy Sayers trivium stuff that you, Logos School in Moscow is trivium, but also deeper than that as well. So trying to take some of what's great about the Charlotte Mason world and the Dorothy Sayers world, and then also rooted in history and um, take advantage of some of these things that have already been built and just rolling them out. Uh, one of the big things we're trying to do that I, I don't know if this has been done exactly this way before, we're really trying to make this affordable for our people. Uh, classical Christian schools can tend to be four to $700 a month per student. And it's just, that's just not possible for most folks that are in our area. Um, so we're really working through to try and give a robust view of the tithe in our church uh, and also of a biblical staffing model for the church where we're not wasting a lot of staffing dollars on, you know, like our sound and smoke machine worship experience with a Z coordinator. Like we don't have one of those. Uh, we, we don't have youth pastor, kids pastor, any of that stuff. Kids worship with us on Sunday. We have a, I'm on staff. Another guy serves as the associate pastor, but we're trying to put, put our money where our mouth is as a church. And, um, 
be able to fund this school through the ministry. And, and I like that because it means that when you are 70 years old and coming to the church and you're giving the tithe, you're supporting the education of the 25-year-old young family. So you're not just paying for that education or paying into that education in the 12 years your children are in school, 12, 15. You're doing it as you participate in the body of Christ together. Wow. So that's, that's one of the things we're trying to do. That's like a non-socialist we'll version of what the state is doing with property taxes. The pro- right, because it's voluntary. And, right. <laughs> but, um, and, and another thing that we're trying to do to make that possible is to have those four, or sorry, those 12 grades divided into four forms, which is a fairly common historical pedagogy and, and method of education. So you'd have a class of six to nine-year-olds, 10 to 12, 13 to 15, 16 to 18. And um, because they're being instructed classically, meaning the teacher is just as much the great books as it is the facilitator in the room, um, it's not a lecture-based, let me kind of bring together all this conglomerate of information from a bunch of textbooks and then lecture it to you. But you discover it in the his, in, in the Western canon, and which is in many ways a story of the church and Christendom and those kinds of things. But um, yeah, that's we're really excited. And uh, we would love to, man, if you're a Christian and you're looking for a place to live and pour into Ogden, Utah, man, put it on your list. We need help. Love it. I love it. I love it, man. You know, um, it's just, Brian, this has been really encouraging. And to everyone watching, I'm going to show you something here. And uh, if you want to be encouraged, and who doesn't want to be encouraged, Mm -hmm. do what I did and go to refugeutah.org and just pull up their What We Believe page, because this is going to bless you as you read through what the core beliefs are of the church, as well as some um, some of their approach to culture. So just, just look at this. Okay. Below, you'll find a series of statements that we believe and defend at Refuge Church. I like that. Believe and defend. That's good. You have to be able to do both. Yeah. These core beliefs capture the basic contours of Christian theology and practice. Anyone pursuing membership and baptism at refuge must agree with these beliefs. And you scroll through and you can see the approach to the Godhead, the scriptures, salvation, ecclesiology, the ordinances, eschatology. And then you've got further issues and denials. And you can tell that they've thought through this because there is a rejection of health and wealth prosperity theology. There is um, a rejection of transgenderism. There is a rejection of sexual license and uh, homosexuality. And you just get the sense that this is a church that is really doing all it can to stand firmly on the on the theological foundation of the scriptures mm. and to do so unapologetically. And that is the way that you love your neighbor. Mm, that's right. Not by being ambiguous, but by being clear. Yeah. And and um and then inviting others to come into that that relationship with God through through Christ standing on the foundation of his word. Uh you get into the theological distinctions and and um ah here we go the statement on cultural and theological maximalism. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but please search through the the belief statement of Refuge Utah. And then if you want a nice contrast, go look up BLM and look at what they believe. 
and ask That's yourself ask yourself which because uh blm's belief statement has been has been rightly receiving a lot of criticism lately yeah. within the church rightly so and just ask yourself which movement and which belief statement is more in line with what i believe as a christian which is a vision for the future that is going to foster flourishing foster biblical humanism foster uh, the glorification of jesus christ in all things mm. and and my friends go align yourself with a movement like this that is that is seeking to bring the kingdom of jesus christ while well, the kingdom of christ is here mm -hmm. jesus is on his throne mm -hmm. but that is seeking to expand the um the kingdom of christ in the world and and man you don't do that by partnering with blm and taking up unbiblical causes you, yeah. you pray for blm pray for their founders pray for their salvation right. pray pray for them to understand the gospel and pray for them to come to something like this belief statement where they would exalt jesus christ and repent of their sins and trust in him because uh, i'll tell you what this is a vision for the future that is uh sustainable and um and and, and it's just very encouraging so mm. brian i, I want to just affirm what you're doing there it's exciting to me and um uh you might notice the two-thirds empty bookshelves behind me here we're in the process of moving out of our home in chicago and mm. um and we are moving to a to an as yet undisclosed location um, still within firing distance of chicago uh maybe i shouldn't say that uh striking distance of chicago <laughs> and uh and uh, we want to keep the ministry in chicago going but we're we're looking to make a more strategic move to set up camp in what doug wilson would call a um a uh uh strategic and feasible a decisive point yeah uh to to a local seat of government which we believe is going to be very um very winnable and very uh very feasible in terms of being able to set up institutions and do a lot of what you're doing out there in mm. ogden so that's exciting yeah yeah it's very exciting but uh listen what what words of wisdom do you want to leave our listeners with before we log off here man the, the 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 biggest thing that i'm trying to get everybody but particularly young men to believe is that you can do it the lord is with you are you a christian do you believe that christ is on his throne do you believe that the 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 scriptures belong to you and that they speak to every aspect of life do you believe that your heart of stone has been taken out and you've been given a heart of flesh do you believe that the spirit's in you and he's causing you to walk in his ways? Um, if you believe those things and, and, and you then just with humility and vigor pursue obedience to those things in all of your life, whether parenting, vocation, marriage, whatever it is, the Lord is going to bear fruit in it. Even if it's difficult, even if it's, and it's going to be, we're promised that, even if there's pushback and loss, the, the word that I would give to you is that the Lord is with you. Young men, you are strong. I write to you because you're strong, John said. And I would want to say the same thing, that you are not what the world is telling you you are. You're not just a bunch of lumps that are you know useless, that can you're not going to do anything. Just hang on until the Lord comes back. You are the Lord's. And so go and pursue obedience to him in everything that you do. Love it. 
Pastor Brian Sauvé, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, I want to encourage everybody, go check out his church, refugeutah.org, and prayerfully consider whether, whether the Lord might be calling you to move out to Ogden, Utah. I'm dead serious. Yeah. And and join the movement of, uh, uh, of what he and his fellow elders and their church are striving to do out there in Utah. Connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute. Get the whole back catalog of all of our Think podcast episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Connect with us on social media. We are on all the major platforms as well as some of the more obscure ones. So uh, whatever you like, go find us on there. And uh, get in touch by sending me an email at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Also, if you like the work that we're doing here with the Think Institute and you th you're thinking, man, I'd like to join and uh, get involved with what Joel and uh, the team are doing, you can partner with us through prayer and financial support by going to give.crew.org slash 1018841. Give.crew.org slash 1018841. What that will do is give you an opportunity to learn more about myself, my family, and what we're doing through the Think Institute. We are missionaries through Crew, and this is a family ministry. And um, we rely on the support of like-minded individuals like yourself and your church. So check us out. And um, while you're at it, go to thethink.institute and find out how to book me to come and speak at your church. That's what I do. That's my, my, uh, my bag. So, um, man, I am very confident that you found something today that you'll find useful. I know I did. And uh, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. So that's about all we have for you today. Until next time, I hope it made you think.